0: Hello, and welcome back to Wellness Wednesday, where experts share insights on topics that are important to pancreatic cancer patients, survivors, and caretakers. I'm Erin Kuhn-Krieger with the Ralph Pancreatic Cancer Foundation, and I'll be co-moderating today's session with Savina Chacheva with our partners over at Cancer Wellness Center. Today, we'll be having an in-depth conversation with Dr. Martha Twaddle, the Medical Director for Palliative Medicine and Supportive Care at Northwestern Medicine. Before we get to Dr. Twaddle, I wanted to share a little bit about Ralph Pancreatic Cancer Foundation for our friends who are joining us from Cancer Wellness Center. We're a local Chicago organization with connections to some of the leading pancreatic hospitals and organizations in the Midwest and beyond. Ralph Foundation provides personal and tailored support to patients, survivors, and families in crisis by connecting individuals with medical experts, personalized resources, and education. We create awareness about risks, and symptoms, and we fund early detection research. Our hands-on approach, or as we like to call it, boots on the ground, ensures that no one has to face this alone. You can learn more at Rawlfoundation.org and connect with us through our social channels as well. We'll go ahead and put those links in the chat so that you can uh, access them quickly. You know, we're right in the middle of pancreatic cancer awareness month. In fact, tomorrow is pancreatic cancer, World Pancreatic Cancer Awareness Day. It's been an exciting month filled with insights and events. And for those joining us who live in Chicago, you could hit up Cortillos tonight on Ontario between 4 and 8, and 20% of the proceeds will come back to Rolf. And it's okay if you want to go ahead and put that ketchup on the, on the hot dogs. We won't care. Um, trivia, if that's your thing, you could also join our Young Professionals Board on November 28th at the Poor House for their trivia night. You could click on that link in the chat for details for there. Throughout this Awareness Month, we've been celebrating the pancreatic cancer warriors and their families and sharing stories about and honoring those that we have lost too soon. In reality, this is what we do on a daily basis. The added exposure and awareness just goes a long way in sharing our mission and working toward our goal and our vision of a world without pancreatic cancer. As we head into the end of the year, we're kicking off our annual Matching for a Cure campaign. Our focus this year is what would you give for one more moment with your loved one? We've already heard stories about people who wish that they could introduce their kids to their grandparents who have never met them. Others who want to just sit and have a cup of coffee and a conversation with their with their loved one or simply give them a hug. What would your moment be? I hope that you'll share it today in the chat or in the days to come on, on our social channels. But in the meantime, your gift can unlock a $30,000 match to honor the life and legacy of Michael Goldberg. Simply click on the link and in the the link in the chat. And remember, every dollar counts. And in this case, it counts twice. Now, I'd like to welcome my partner today, Savina Chachava from Cancer Wellness Center. Welcome, Savina.
1: Thank you so much, Erin. Um, as always, it is a pleasure working with you in the uh, Rolf Pancreatic Cancer Foundation. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for joining us today. For those of you new to the Cancer Wellness Center, I would like to take a minute and tell you more about the center. The Cancer Wellness Center is a nonprofit organization Founded in 1989 with the mission to improve the physical and emotional well being of those impacted by cancer and their families. Our services, which are cur- currently both virtual and in person, include education programs like the One This Afternoon that aim to help you navigate the varied challenges that come with living with a cancer diagnosis, wellness classes like yoga, meditation, mindfulness, stress relief, and more that provide a holistic approach to healthy living, and support services services which include counseling for individuals, families, couples, children, and those bereaved, as well as support groups that are designed to help our participants manage the emotional and mental impact of cancer. If you would like to learn more about the Cancer Wellness Center and connect to our free programs and services, please visit cancerwellness.org and the link will be included in the chat. now before we welcome our presenter Erin will share a few housekeeping items. Thanks so much,
0: Savina. So throughout the session, you can ask your questions. Uh, we, we do like to save them all for the end to make sure that we're able to get to everyone. And we understand that today's topic is, is a difficult one and we will be doing our best to speak candidly and respectfully um, as we walk through all of all the details that Dr. Martha is about to share. Uh, if you do have questions but don't feel comfortable putting them in the chat, that's okay. Just email them to us at info at so we're so grateful to have Dr. Martha Twaddle, whose work combines over 30 years of experience in the care of seriously ill people and their families. Dr. Twaddle currently serves as the Wad Family Director of, for Palliative Medicine and Supportive Care at Northwestern Medicine. She also serves as the co-chair for the National Consensus Project for the Quality Palliative Care for the American Academy of, American Academy of Hospice and Palliative Medicine, which published a clinical practical guidelines for the field. We're so excited to have you. Welcome, Dr. Martha.
2: It always helps to unmute. <laughs> it does. <laughs> uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Let me get my, uh, my screen up here and we can, let's see here. This off. All right. Can you see that? we are good to go. All right, thanks so much. I just have to say what an absolute joy and privilege it is to be here um to be a part of this group presenting a very tender topic. Um the Cancer Wellness Center is a place of uh, great just a jewel. And I realized when you were in, introducing again and sharing its history It launched the year I launched into practice. I was chief resident 88 to 89 and started in practice in 89. And I guess I've grown up with a Cancer Wellness Center. Um, I wanna also dedicate this talk to my beloved colleague, teacher, friend, mentor, Pamela Holtzman, who is part of the Cancer Wellness Center and just instrumental in in my growth and development as well. And I had the privilege of being her doctor at the end of her life. Cancer Wellness Center and really just what was said in the intro is we cannot do this alone. We need a community, we need to be connected. We find strength, um, reinforcements and resources when we access that. So I am extremely grateful to the Ralph Foundation, to the Cancer Wellness Center, and to people like who are helping to make this talk um, possible. So thank you. Uh, it is a tender topic, but it is important also to touch on it to the degree we wanna engage and to be thinking about our lives and um, planning around what's important to us. I share this picture. Um, It's not a Bargello needlepoint. It is actually what's called a mortality map. And what it shows reflecting uh, changes in diagnoses that occur um, and causes of death across a spectrum of age and the population and as you can see, cancer really peaks in in the vulnerable and very active ages of the 40s through 70s when people are living their lives and very active with their families and trying to perhaps retire and enjoy uh, travel and things like that. And so it it has such um, impact on people and their families. And for that reason, I think it's very important that we talk about the big picture that we hope for the best and prepare for the rest. I love that saying that we tend to prepare for things like births and weddings and such, but we don't tend to talk about or prepare for those parts of our lives where frailty and advanced illness will confront us and perhaps limit us, likely limit us. And very few of us prepare for funerals or give directives around that. When you survey people, 80% of people say, this is really, really important. We should do this. But less than 25% of people actually do. So what I'd like to do today is talk a bit about these definitions. What is palliative care? What is hospice? And, And what does it mean to me? When do I think about what? And most importantly, I'm hoping that you will be thinking about yourself in terms of what I want, how I want to manifest, how I want to live my life with serious illness, in spite of serious illness, because of serious illness. And who do I want to have with me in that um in that journey? So again, hope for the best, plan for the rest. There's some great resources out there, Cancer Wellness, Role Foundation as um guides to help us. There's some reading materials. <laughs> this one by Roz Chaz is pretty funny. Um, It's using a cartoon approach to touch on topics of um, advanced care planning. And my beloved BJ Miller and Shoshana Berger wrote this book kind of in response to the what to expect when you're expecting equivalent. One of the things I've certainly reflected on through my career is is just how medicine and physicians in the world of healthcare is perceived and hoped to be received by those of us, particularly when we become fragile and I'm dating myself to put up a picture of Marcus Welby if I show this to physicians nowadays they have no idea who this is but it this idea that healthcare and the health professionals will take care of us is something that people really do deeply believe and yet what's happened even in my training and certainly in my practice is watching the changes that have occurred in healthcare and how it is very much focused on cure and that sense of losing control. When you hit the ED, you get a outfit to wear um, on a luge ride, it seems, and the sense of being out of control. Where is my voice? How do I make sure that the care that I am receiving is really care and is really consistent with what I value? How do I make that happen? What's happened in medicine, and I could talk for hours about the history and all that, but I won't bore you, um, is that we, because of certain changes that occurred culturally and politically, medicine became very much focused on the physiology and diagnosis, became about multidisciplinary care, predominantly delivered by specialty services, uh, trying to eradicate disease, prolong life, and very much a biomedical model of care. And biomedical is great in terms of look at all these wonderful therapies that have been advanced and cancer in particular. Wow, what a what changes I've witnessed in my career of how people can live for a very long time with advanced serious illness and live well. The challenge is in, in the midst of focusing simply on diagnosis and treatment, the person and their experience of their illness, um, and sometimes the isolation that can occur because of that, if people are focused more on the disease, they aren't thinking about who is it who's living with the disease, and how do I support them, and also how do I support their families? So Eric Cassell, this was in 1982, when I was in training, um, wrote this. He was at University of Chicago at the time and really resonates with me. I I have this printed on my desk. It's just remembering always that our commitment to folks is not just about the cure of disease. It is also about the relief of suffering and understanding what suffering means to the individual because it is a very individual uh, manifestation. And this uh, sentence kind of changed for my use is from my friend and colleague, Harvey Chochinoff, who's a psychiatrist in Toronto, and he's the one who has spearheaded dignity therapy. And he distills this down to say, you know, every physician should really touch on what matters most to people. What do I need to know about you so I can take the best possible care of you? What is it essential? What essential piece of who you are? Do I need to know? And taking the time to ask that is really, really important as a part of the medical history, as a part of the assessment of the individual. And as I mentioned, it's not just about us, right? It's about all those who love and care for us and the impact our illness can have on those who love and care for us having gone through uh, my brother's diagnosis and treatment, and I celebrate that he is almost 12 years with neuroendocrine, stage four neuroendocrine, it's amazing, um, pancreas, that uh, how much that experience affected all of us and um, even to the point of sympathetic symptoms was fascinating. So the answer (laughs) to the biomedical model, is a biomedical psychosocial spiritual model, which is really the very essence of medicine, is looking at the person first, what matters to them, who's their family, how do they like to make decisions, how much information, all sorts of aspects of who they are. The person who first started this effort to look beyond the biomedical model was this remarkable woman, Cicely Saunders, who became knighted, I guess, to make her a dame in England. So Saunders started her career as a nurse, became a social worker when she injured her back, and then went back in her, I want to say she was probably in her 50s, 40s or 50s, to, as they say in England, read medicine. And she became a physician, and she worked predominantly with people at the end of life. She worked within hospice facilities in England. And Saunders introduced the model that of the modern hospice approach to care, which was focused on the relief of suffering and promoting really manifest, helping people to live well, have quality of life, recognizing that time was short and preparing for that, what what was important as we prepared. And this was predominantly for people and particularly when Saunders was working on this model, this was in the sixties and seventies chemotherapy, was extremely toxic. And there became a very definitive endpoint to where therapies seriously could not be given any further because the person would be killed, literally. Um, so it was very, it was a little more clear cut as to when this point was reached. But she is the one who introduced this idea of whole person care. And she also applied the scientific model and study to um, the care for people at the end of life. So hospice is typically for people whose disease has come to its end stages where prognosis is defined in terms of months, weeks to months. And the goals of care are fully about comfort, focus, and managing symptoms. We're no longer trying to treat the disease directly. We're trying to help the person live as well as possible in the time that they have. And we see certain signs that functional status their ability to do things is becoming more limited. They may be more foggy. Um, obviously, weight loss is a, a accompanying issue and problems with swallowing. And family needs more help. They need trained professionals that this is what they do to come alongside and help support them and their loved one during this time. Now the original model of hospice, and this creates some confusion even on this side of the pond in the US, is the original hospice model was an institution, um, a place that you went. And St. Christopher's Hospice in London is where Saunders worked, where she did a lot of her research, um, became an education center. And we have this idea sometimes that hospice is a place that you go. Well, in in the mid 70s, this amazing woman, by the, also, the pleasure of meeting in my career, Florence Wald. She was the dean of nursing at Yale. Spitfire shook a deep breath. She maybe hit five feet, but man, this woman! Wow, she was powerful. And she befriended Saunders, and they together created this project where we were going. They were going to introduce the concept of hospice as an institutional uh, delivery system within Yale. Um, and as is typical in America, we kind of have our own ideas, right? And it very quickly became a home care model with visiting nurses going to the home versus a place that you went. Because really, when you're very ill, the last place you want to be is in the hospital. You'd rather be somewhere else, more 99% of people don't want to be in the hospital. There's a few who do. Um, and so this model morphed very quickly It gained energy. Um, It became a demonstration project in 1982 overseen by Congress, uh, deemed to be worthy of funding to be a demonstration project. In 1986, it became the law. It became a benefit, um, what is called the Medicare Hospice Benefit. And this is a picture of the folks at the time that it was signed into law. Some of these folks are still active in hospice care. Um, Right underneath the light post is the woman with curly hair. That's Judy Lundperson. She still works for the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization. Still just an email away. Hey, Judy, I got a question for you. Amazing. uh, You know, I love Margaret Mead saying, never doubt that a small group of committed people can change the world because indeed it is the only thing that ever has. So... There is a mixed blessing in uh, becoming a Medicare certified insurance program because hospice is a beautiful philosophy of whole person care and a model of care delivery, very innovative. But once it becomes an insurance company and a federally regulated one, there are laws and rules, and these are in the uh, code of federal regulations. This is a big deal. I say to my, when I teach about this, you need to sit up straight when you work within this mandate. Um, because it is, it's serious business. Um, it defines what hospice delivers as an insurance benefit. It defines the roles of the different folks on the core team. Interestingly, it requires volunteers, which is the only insurance product ever made that required volunteer hours. Um, and that was really an effort to improve the social interactions and support for patients and families you have to be eligible to use this ho- this benefit. And once it was launched in 86 and began to be practiced and people were utilizing the benefit, and I started as a hospice medical director in 1989, first as a volunteer, and then stuck with it in addition to internal medicine. <clears throat> um, most insurance companies began to mimic as did Medicaid. Um, the benefit So there are variations it's not exactly the same if you have for example Humana versus Medicare but it is fairly uniform and you have to say this is what I want to elect and you can move in and out of the benefit it is an insurance coverage plan so like I said, I started in 1989 in this work. I found it absolutely amazing to really be focused on person, people, body, mind, and spirit. But what I also found deeply troubling is that these people were confronting end of life. Some had prognoses of hours to days versus days to months or months to years. And I it seemed crazy to me that we waited until people were at the end of life to talk about what matters most, to think about what makes life meaningful, what we value, and to plan to protect that. (laughs) Um, So I knew that my thought and my uh, anguish over that this was not unique to me, there were likely thought leaders out there who were thinking the same, and there were. This gentleman, Dr. Bow from Mount, became a friend and mentor. Bow was at McGill University, was a urologic surgeon, and then he went to Memorial Sloan Kettering and became an oncology urology surgeon. And then he went across the pond, as he likes to say, and worked with Saunders, learned about hospice, came back to French-speaking Quebec, and wanted to integrate this model of whole person care into his care as a surgeon and as a really at the time of diagnosis, but the word hospice was not going to make, it's not going to be effective. So he, he needed a different word. And so he was the one who coined the term palliative, which means to protect, to wrap, to cover, um, to avoid suffering. And Bao mentored the, um, the beginnings of a what became the American Academy of Hospice and Medicine, which initially was this tiny little group of international folks called the Academy of Hospice Physicians, which I was a part of. <clears throat> and there was a group of us at Northwestern uh, under the direction of Jamie Von Rowan. Some of you might know Jamie's name, who we started a hospice program Back in the 80s, it was totally volunteer. There was no reimbursement. Chicago Bears funded a good piece of that and allowed us to open an inpatient unit at what was then Passive End Hospital, for those of you who know the history of medical care in the city. And in the early 90s, around the time I was pregnant with my daughter, um, (laughs) we decided that we were going to become palliative and rehabilitative medicine. And we went to the head of oncology and said, could we use this term, as we do consultations, could we become palliative medicine? And he said, sure, <laughs> so we did. Um, and we started a teaching service. We made it a requirement for the fellows in oncology to spend time with us. This was during the AIDS epidemic, so probably about 95 percent of our patients had advanced AIDS and the cancers related to AIDS, but it then began to expand. And in 1995, I helped Shepherd an inpatient unit at Evanston Hospital when it was part of Northwestern um, into being, and it just continued to grow. Um, What really got the attention, I just have to share this little bit of history that's kind of funny. Um, What got the history or really got the attention of the Northwestern leadership around what was happening in their hallways was the visit of an amazing young woman, um, Princess Diana. And when she came to Northwestern to visit, they had this great agenda for her to see all these specialty services, et cetera. And she asked if she could spend time on the palliative care unit which of course left them a little bit gobsmacked because they whispered to each other, do we have a palliative care unit? And they were assured that they did, it was in And she spent the entire day on the palliative care unit and visited every patient um, and talked to them. And again, these patients, about 90% had AIDS. She did not wear gloves, she touched people, she held their hands. And certainly she gave us an incredible affirmation that further helped launch this important endeavor. And we knew that the palliative care and palliative medicine, its medical discipline, were vitally important to the well-being of patients. Uh, we could see it begin to manifest as we grew this consult service. So, what is palliative care? Well, first off, it's a medical component, the training, the specialization is called palliative medicine and it is a specialty. It now has a formal specialty. It is actually the fifth largest medical subspecialty in the U.S. Whoa, that started at Northwestern as well um, in about 96 and then took off. So palliative care is the interdisciplinary team-based approach that integrates into the care delivery system for people and their families to help improve symptom management, Support emotional and psychological well being, guide through the messy healthcare system that we currently have, and help mentor really tough decisions. Um, we call it palliative medicine and supportive care. And what is really critical is that it is a team, it requires a team um, that, again, integrates enhances, does not take away from the physicians who are already involved, but helps them in their care delivery for people who are seriously ill and helps with the symptoms and helps people live well until the end of life. So I've used both the terms palliative care and hospice. So palliative care is different from hospice in that hospice is a form of palliative care that's specific for people at the end of life when they are considered terminally ill. And the definition of terminal illness is one where um, prognosis is less than six months and folks are no longer benefiting from disease-directed treatment. In fact, the burden of that is greater than the benefit. Palliative care is for folks, irrespective of prognosis. It's just need-driven and it definitely helps people live well throughout the trajectory from the time of diagnosis of a serious illness, waxing and waning in terms of support driven by the needs of that person and their family. So helping them with symptoms, helping them with practical care delivery. How do I get home care? What about physical therapy? What about a hospital bed? What about a walker? Different things that we need. And this team helps to enhance the care. The, the transition into hospice when that is necessary is less abrupt and chaotic and much more accompanied. And people also receive support after the death. So I came to appreciate that, again, the multidisciplinary specialty care delivery of um, modern medicine is kind of like swim lanes, everybody's in their lane, um, doing their flip turns, charting in the chart, but there isn't really collaboration, communication. And palliative care comes in and gets rid of the lane markers and creates a team, uh, integrates into the care delivery model, gets rid of that kind of, I'm in my lane, let's collaborate, the person and their family are in the center, and all this is all about creating and collaborating and communicating for ultimate support for them. We don't have to wear silly base, um, bathing caps, but uh, it definitely is more affirming to help people live well. And as was mentioned in my intro, this is guided by science and research. We have now the fourth edition of the clinical practice guidelines. I love these. They're amazing. You can access them on the the web and read them. And what I'm particularly proud of in this fourth edition is we talked about how important it is not just to assess the needs and well-being of the person who is ill, but those who love and care for them. And when you write clinical practice guidelines, not only does it inform the care that's provided, but it also informs uh, policy and payment. And after these guidelines came out, which were um, endorsed by over 80 organizations in this country, we started to see some of the Medicare disadvantage programs paying for um, caregiving, which really flows from this. Because if you say this is important and you say this is a quality intervention, then we got to find a way to deliver it to patients. So... I wanted to share this with you because the, again, the idea is this isn't an extra layer of support, which is what one of the organizations for palliative care often describes palliative care. An extra layer of support is actually an integration of support into this, the care that is being practiced to enhance, to identify who needs it, <laughs> who who needs this type of care and how to help them and better enhance rather than adding confusion and complexity it's helping to create team. So this is a diagram of a medical home model with assessing the the needs of the patient and applying more support and care management for people who are considered high risk, which is usually those who are seriously ill. In the cancer model, which is where palliative care started back in the eighties, we started within the cancer services through, it was the AIDS epidemic, but we started within oncology this partnership has just been remarkable (laughs) so the idea is integrating palliative care services into the ambulatory setting when we go to see our oncologist or we go for infusion we're also seeing our palliative care team we're doing symptom assessments we're talking about what's important we're planning for the future we want to live well and so having that integration having the convenience of it um, partnering with oncology care delivery is enormously helpful. And not only is it enormously helpful, it was actually studied. And this article that was published in 2010 by Jennifer Timmel and Vicki Jackson, who are at Mass General, um, this was a, a, a sentinel event, so to speak. So this was a three-year study in lung cancer one group was receiving a stage three and stage four lung cancer. One group was receiving standard oncology care. They went to Mass General, saw other oncologists, got their chemo, got their radiation. The other group had standard oncology care at Mass General. Plus, when they were there in the clinic, they also saw palliative care. They did their symptom management. They talked about planning, all these other things. And At the end of three years, What they found is the people who received palliative care support in the office just this way had improved mood on measurable, on validated scales, improved quality of life scores, more documentation around advanced directives, chose less aggressive end-of-life care, didn't die in the hospital. But what was really galvanizing is they lived on average three months longer than the standard oncology care group. They lived longer. so that caught the attention of oncologists and I still remember the knock on the door when I was doing a project out at Northwest Community Hospital of the oncologists he says I think I need you did you see that article in the journal and I'm like yeah um, we need to integrate this and this is the model that Northwestern has continues to work on is this gorgeous integration of early palliative care helping people live well and we see this we haven't measured it in the same way that jennifer and vicky did but we definitely see the impact in terms of well-being times improvement in terms of weathering treatments etc it's been i think pretty inspirational so what i want to pivot to a little bit is i'm talking about how important these you know It is to express your values, to be sure that the care is aligned with what's important to you. And I want to give you some practical tools. And the slide set will be available to you. Uh, Don't feel like you have to write things down, because this is going to be available to you to, to refer back to. Creating what are called advanced care planning documents or advanced directives is really important, not so much because it communicates to others what's important to us but it also gives us some structure and approach to talk about things that are rather tender, to know how to launch these conversations, kind of like that first little book I showed you, Can't We Talk About Something More Pleasant. These are tools and advanced directives serve to make sure that what we consider important, what gives us joy, what also we want to avoid is respected even when we're too ill to advocate for ourselves. There are lots of different ones out there. I wanna just touch briefly on what they are. So you again, have the definitions and this will be available. There's also resources, cancer wellness. um, And if there's questions, um, I'm more than happy to respond to you even through email. So the most important thing we can do and we're supposed to do <laughs> is when we turn eighteen, believe it or not, we're supposed to designate who's our decision maker in the event we're too ill to make our own decisions. Now, most eighteen-year-olds don't think about this, but what often happens is there's an accident, a car accident, something traumatic, and we scramble because they, their parents, which it would go to through surrogacy, might not be who they have asked to be their decision-makers. So establishing these things is really, really important and starting sooner than later. Um, Advanced directives begin to grow as we become more frail or we move from that position of being what I consider well-baby care, where we just go in and you're doing great, to actually having a, a very grounding diagnosis that we're now living with and managing. And so at that point in particular, when we get diagnosed, we want to take stock of, okay, what do I have in place? Who do I need to designate in different roles? And when the illness and its impact reaches a certain stage where we are functionally more impaired or beginning to get more confused, goodness knows we want to be sure that the care that we're receiving is consistent with what we want because we might be too fragile to really advocate for ourselves. So one of my favorite forms is what's called Five Wishes. Um, It was created by a gentleman named Jim Tui, who's a professor and runs a school in Florida or used to. He was also Mother Teresa's lawyer, which I Always made me chuckle. He he said he used to joke she was very litigious, but that's not true. He protected her identity and protected her from being taken advantage of. But Jim created this document, and the reason I like it is that it speaks to not just um, what we don't want to have happen to us, you know, particularly when we become very very uh, ill, but it also speaks to what we do want. So I, I mentioned that these are tools that help us in the conversation so for example i did a five wishes i i took it to my family one night at dinner um it was fascinating because as i shared the things that i didn't want done but more importantly what i found comforting um the color drained out of my husband's face clearly he the emotions of this are really unsettling to him my daughter was only um about 16 at the time she thought it was gross and my son who was only around 13 at the time was very very intrigued and asked me really good questions and i was sharing how you know at the end of my life please do not turn on the television i hate the tv i don't want it squawking no high pitched sopranos with vibrato that makes me insane cello music is preferred yo-yo ma is really fabulous wash my mouth out with dark wine, you know, with red wine and dark beer and forever and ever, if possible, give me chocolate. Those are the things that I find comforting, certain music, certain ambiance, because I might not be able to tell you. And my, again, my son was very intrigued. He got it, he laughed. Um, and guess who's my healthcare power of attorney now? It's my son, he's now 27. And because he gets me and that's the idea, is we want to choose someone who understands us and can channel us, who can engage with physicians and other healthcare providers to be our true advocate. The most important thing, once you listen to me talking to you, is I want you to walk away with making sure you have a healthcare power of attorney and making sure that that person is truly your champion and can truly advocate for you And they know that they're your healthcare power attorney. Don't choose them and not tell them. Um, Have a discussion, perhaps use the five wishes as a document to review together. Uh, It's not a one and done. It doesn't have to be like a marathon discussion of something that's tender, but it's so, so important to address and feel that comfort of knowing that you have had these conversations. You do have to have a witness to the document, but you do not need to have a lawyer. You do not need to have this notarized. You can pull the form, Illinois form, off the web, fill it out, have the mailman witness it, and please do not put it in your safe deposit box. I just went through this with a patient who put a really important document in the safe Um, and didn't understand that really uh, we need to have access to that. And dealing with a safe at a time of emergency is probably not the preferred thing to do. So what happens if you don't designate a healthcare power attorney, which unfortunately we see a great deal with some of our older patients. They um, might be widowed or widowers, and they have, quote, left it to the kids because my kids get me. So we, if you don't have a designated power of attorney, it goes to what's called surrogacy and there's a checklist. Each state has a surrogate checklist. This is Illinois. It obviously starts with the patient. If the patient doesn't have capacity for whatever reason, maybe too frail or ill or can't talk because they're on a machine, then we have to go to their power of attorney. And if they don't have that, then we go to the surrogate list. And if they don't have a spouse or civil partner, it goes to the kids. Um, and the challenge is under the law that it has to be a consensus agreement of the adult children. So I put this picture up of the referee kind of, I'm not kidding, because sometimes these conversations, particularly under the circumstances, are quite fraught with emotion and the Best thing you can do for your loved ones and for also for your healthcare folks is to say who's my decision maker, so that we don't have to do a referee session and there isn't this pot boil of of emotions. That you have a person who's help helping to really make the decision with input from others, um, who gets you and can advocate for you. There are other documents. One most people know about is something called a living will. This is usually done by folks who are very ill, um, who say, "This is I don't want these things done. So it's like part of the five wishes, but not quite as uh, this is what I do want you to do. Um, some folks think this living will is sufficient that if I say this is important to me and if I say don't resuscitate me or don't put me on a ventilator, we're good to go. But the challenge is legally a living will is not actionable. Meaning if you are very seriously ill and if you have strong preferences as to what you want your care delivery to look like, for example, you don't want to be uh, attempts made at resuscitation in the event that you die, or you would prefer not to be on a breathing machine at any time. You want to avoid that. And you are in a situation where you've called 911. <laughs> um, so, calling 911 gives consent for treatment. And the people who respond are paramedics, they're not docs, they're paramedics, and they follow protocols. So unless there is an order in the home that directs them to a different care protocol, they have to do all things. If you have a strong preference to say, you know, when I die, please do not attempt to reverse that. Do not attempt resuscitation. They will, unless you have what's called a pulsed form in the home, the paramedics are required to initiate protocols around resuscitation, which may be totally not what you want. The other piece around the pulse that folks don't understand, and I think this is super important, is of course there's a piece of, yes, try to resuscitate me if I'm found pulseless and breathless, And there's the other part that says, please don't. If you find that I've died, please respect that and leave me alone. That is separate and distinct from what happens if you find me in distress. So if you find me in distress, I've got a pulse, I'm I'm having a hard time breathing. I can also designate what intensity of care I wish to have do everything possible, transport me to the hospital, take me to the ICU, use ventilatory support, use drugs, whatever, or perhaps avoid that ventilator but still transfer me. I I want you to try to support me or perhaps just make sure I'm comfortable, reach out to my family, don't transport me. Those orders also exist on the post. And what people don't realize is that you can say, in the event I die, don't attempt to resuscitate me. However, if while life is present, if I have any signs of vitals, please do everything you can. You can have both. You can have full treatment and do not attempt resuscitation. And even physicians do not understand that, that they are two separate issues. And for many of my patients who are very religious, that's what it says. Full treatment, but DNR. In the event that I die, don't mess with me. The benefits of having these documents aren't so much the documents. They're helpful to your healthcare providers. The benefits are they are representative that we have had some conversations. <laughs> because really where it matters is having these challenging, tender conversations about where do I want to be? Who do I want to have with me? What do I want done in the event that I am so ill? Do I want to be at home? Would I prefer not to be at home? All those different things are very important for those who love and care for you. What matters to me is the question, not what's the matter with me. How can you understand um, what I value the most, particularly if I'm just so sick, I can't frame that response. Um, So creating advocacy through conversations, identifying our champion, documenting through advanced directives helps protect those things that matter most to us. Sometimes people worry that if they have these conversations, it's going to lead to depression or they're going to give up hope. And actually this was way long ago now, 2008, the opposite has been shown to be true. That when folks had end of life conversations, um, they actually more likely uh, were accepting, they knew, they understood what was happening. They more often chose a uh, more robust palliative response and many chose to have a do not uh, attempt resuscitation order the juxtapose were they those caregivers who survived loss and they hadn't had these conversations were much more likely to be depressed have regrets have ptsd feel unprepared and reported poor health and quality of life after their loss so having these conversations as tough as they are are not associated with poor outcomes for the patient and are associated with very good outcomes for the patient and the caregivers by planning, by touching on this, as tender as it is. And palliative care is often the um, team that helps facilitate these conversations, helps fa- really bring people um, to a place of support where they can talk about these things, Give kind of almost give permission. Let's talk about this now. Are you okay talking about this now? And in little doses, again, this doesn't have to be a marathon. It's better to do it when you're not in an emergency room or under duress or feeling pressured to make a decision. It's much better to have these conversations when it's more theoretical, almost philosophical. So ultimately, this is... What we're trying to do is shape the medical care to be what matters to that person. So Saunders idea, um, Balfour Mount's idea, our early idea, it's all about the person and their family, and family can be a chosen family, what they value and shaping care delivery such that it is consistent, it is aligned with what's important to them. And helping to um, support those conversations give space and time and, and mentoring to those conversations, and then to document what people want and prefer um, in, under certain circumstances so that we can protect them, which is the meaning of palliative care, to protect. So we covered a lot. <laughs> and again, I'll give you these slides. Um, we talked about palliative care versus hospice, the importance of integrating whole person care at the time of diagnosis, I want you to walk away with just to double check that you have that healthcare power of attorney and that they know you're the healthcare power of attorney and that you document it. Some of us are at a point in our disease trajectory where we really want to be thinking about pulsed forms and um and planning for that tender part of our life because the gift we give those we love is to plan so that when that tender time comes we're not grappling or struggling to know what the person wants we know what the person wants because we've talked about it so our motto at northwestern is to live well and land softly let me stop sharing my screen hold on oops thank you so
0: much dr martha um oh a, my
2: joy a beat joy. To, to
0: catch my breath after that and uh mm-hmm. go through um, you know you've touched on so many um, amazing points that, that I'd love to dig, uh, dig deeper into. So we're going to open up to questions. We've had some that have come through during your talk. And, um, for folks that are are watching right now, please continue to, um, ask questions. You could do it in the chat. And again, if you're not comfortable, please go ahead and email us at info at rawfoundation.org. So, you know, I think one of, it's hard not to listen to you and, think to your own personal experiences, oh, right? Yeah. And, and <laughs> go through, um, you know, I, I love the idea of starting these conversations early, right? It's it's kind of like talking to kids about sex or drugs that it's not a one and done, you know, you wanna have yeah. these conversations and go at the same time, you know, like you said, it is a, a, a touchier subject. And so what's your um, thoughts or recommendations for when, when somebody say for my generation, wants to talk to um you know the parents the grandparents and and <laughs> they're offended by it um yeah. is is there a way that that we can kind of walk that path easier
2: yeah it, and a lot of it of course each family is is unique and how we communicate and where we we go with these conversations my um my dad was a veteran and had had so much experience that he always brought it up. You know, this is what I want. He'd bring it up at dinner table and we'd be like, dad. Um, so sometimes it it's just allowing family to know or parents to know or a loved one to know that you're listening because they do want to talk to you about it, but they don't know how to start the conversation. So, and some of it is, um, you know, that, people push back because they're afraid it's going to get too emotional so we try to figure out again it's in small amounts of maybe we're gardening with mom <laughs> just say you know it would be really helpful to me i care about you so much i just want to be sure that we have plans in place um for if you become more frail so that i'm always doing what you would want me to do you know and then just listen um or inquire about, do you, do you have some of those documents around um, your planning and where might I find those? (laughs) Cause that's where the conversation recently was about, well, it's in the safe and, Ooh, that's a problem. If the paramedics show up, they're not able to get in your safe. It's great. You did the DNR, but could we put it in the freezer so they can get it? So it, it's a hard question to answer as something ubiquitous because every person's an individual. But my, I just try to keep engaging uh, with folks, and usually I do that in my work. Is you know, tell me what's really important to you, and do we then have what's in place to make sure that what's important to you is something we continue to support. How about if the patient
0: and the care, the caretakers wishes and and point of views don't align?
2: Yeah. Yeah. And that's where having a trained professional in the conversation is super helpful is getting the heads up from the patient or the caregivers that they're not because that's more common than not. We cope in different ways. Um, Denial is actually a very effective cope coping mechanism and sometimes we just don't want to talk about it so actually one of the first things in in our work that we inquire is: is do you want to talk about this <laughs> do you do how much information do you find helpful about your illness and how do you, is this something you want to explore a direct or do you want to to have your son do it for you or your daughter do it for you and in particularly in some cultures that's normative It's not that the person has to make all the decisions, but again, some of it is really coming to terms with what's happening and what we're afraid of. And that's where I find having a professional there who, this is what we do can help mentor those conversations and doing it in a way that's loving and supportive and thoughtful. And ideally, like you said, Erin is let's do it early. So there isn't a sense of urgency and pressure because that's just not helpful. How about um, power of attorney documents? Do they differ from state to state or is it kind of one size fits all? They're pretty much the same from state to state. If you look at them, it's preferred that if you live in Wisconsin, you have a Wisconsin healthcare power of attorney. And if you live in Illinois, but they're pretty much the same thing and the same statute around it that they don't require, though many lawyers will charge you to do one for you. (laughs) It's not necessary to have that um, done. A lot of people do it in conjunction with a will they wait for that. Or if you think about it though, you're supposed to do it when you're 18. So it should be on our driver's license, right? You know, you get your driver's license when you're 18 and they ask you about donating organs. So maybe they should ask you (laughs) who's your healthcare power attorney. Um, So it's a simple thing to do. It can be changed if things change. And again, I think the epiphany for me, as I shared, was that it may not be our spouse that person may not be the the best to have as champion. And again, these decisions don't happen in a in a vacuum. It's, you know, the whole family's giving input. It's just who's going to be the actual person to say, this is what my mom would want. This is what my wife would want. And we want to pick that person who is comfortable in that role and who really can translate what we want, not what they want, what we would want if we were sitting there. Yeah. So our next question says, my wife is a very intelligent person,
0: but also sees palliative care as a euphemism for hospice. Mm -hmm. She's a Northwestern medicine patient now, um, but now 18 months into her treatment, she's only been recently encouraged by her Northwestern team to consider it.
2: Yeah. Well, and I think because of where palliative care came from, and if you read on the internet, it's very confusing because remember in the UK and in Europe, there is no such thing as hospice. Well, in the UK there is, in England there is, but in a lot of places there's no hospice. So it's all palliative care. We're the ones with a hospice benefit under Medicare. So I, what I say to people is, um, you know, here is a specialty of medicine and a team, healthcare team that has been shown to improve quality of life, lower caregiver stress and help you live longer. If I were a drug, (laughs) I'd have billions of dollars of sales. And the research now, like in that study, that was an amazing study, and it has since been repeated multiple times, is when you integrate whole person care and symptom management into the care delivery early, people do better, and their caregivers do too, which is why oncologists at Northwestern are going to say, hey, have you thought about palliative care? We're not talking hospice. We're talking palliative care, but I find even physicians do not understand what palliative care is. They even physicians are like, well, that's when you stop doing things. No, (laughs) the people in the study were receiving standard of care treatments and they did better because we integrated this support in addition into their care plan. (laughs) Right, so you, you yeah. talked about the Medicare
0: coverage. Um, can, can you talk a little bit further about the coverage for palliative care versus hospice? Are, are some, is home health considered um, a covered benefit of palliative
2: care or of hospice or both? So palliative care is not a benefit in the sense of an insurance coverage, okay? Palliative care is just like um, cardiology, oncology. It's a subspecialty, it's a specialty service that integrates into your care. So it's covered by insurance, just like, you know, you pay for a doctor visit or a APP visit, there's no difference. The So people can receive home care, they can receive all their treatments. It doesn't get in the way because it's not like hospice, which is an actual benefit that you sign into and then starts to Um, you know, organize what gets paid for and what isn't covered, right? Because that's what insurance coverage does. So it's important to realize that palliative care doesn't have that same structure around it. It's simply a subspecialty practice that's going to integrate with the care I'm already receiving to augment and improve things so that I do better. Okay, that that makes sense. How do you know that you're choosing the best hospice agency Mm -hmm. for yourself or your loved one? That's a really good question, particularly in a state like Illinois. Um, So some states have what's called Certificate of Need, where there's one hospice program and you don't get a choice. Illinois has like, I don't know, 40 hospices in (laughs) this area. So what I think is important is to be able to get the opinion of your treating team as to which program they trust and why. So we have about seven, eight programs that we have vetted, that we will work with, that we trust in the care of our patients. And our team tends to stay involved with folks once they move into hospice care. So we stay as they're attending of record in hospice care and keep the communication going. Um, that really helps. But it's, you know, if you've seen one hospice, sadly, you've seen one hospice. And even though they're Medicare certified, doesn't mean they all have the same model or go the distance or do, or provide the professional care that we really need. This isn't retail. You can't say to someone, I don't like my hospice experience. I wanna do it differently next time. You get one chance and you gotta do it well. So it's imperative that we discern which program might be best geographically. And you interview a couple. Does it feel like a good fit? And remember too, it, what's fascinating is people who utilize hospice care, if they utilize it early, tend to live longer than those who don't use hospice. Kind of the like oxymoron, right? And there are some people, and I've seen this many times, who actually get better during hospice care and are kind of baffled by it. Like, wait, what's going on? I'm I'm doing so much better. Well, yeah, you know you got a nurse coming out two to three times a week and we're watching things like a hawk and we're improving your symptoms. You, We hope you feel better. And that's the whole idea is to get that care in there early so that you can live well.
0: So two questions coming off of that and I hope I could remember both. The first is, um, so the, the hospice nurse will kind of come two to three times a week, right? How about for those who need, families who need all day care, you know, mm-hmm. of, of finding an additional mm-hmm. caretaker. Are, are there good resources for folks to be able
2: to to search for that? That's probably the greatest stress that we have in our country is the lack of um, really good uh, public health support, and unfortunately, insurance programs other than long term care do not cover what they call room and board. Um, They don't cover personal caregivers that stay 24-7 and it gets to be out of pocket and it's astronomical. I've lived that many times over. It's just amazing how much this costs. So that's also part of the discussion of how do we do what, when, how do we cobble together because our country does not have enough resources for this and identifying resources and caregivers that we can trust because again vulnerable fragile people who's going in the home let's be sure they're bonded insured reliable all those things and the poor daughter isn't getting a call at you know six o'clock at night that hey the caregiver didn't show up and what are we going to do mom's all by herself that those those are some of the added stresses that nobody prepares us for and we need help that's where again, palliative care uh, being part of the team is going to go to bat with the practical issues that support people.
0: okay um so then this the second question was you had talked about how sometimes hospice care goes on for a really long time. Um, <laughs> while that's wonderful on on some instances and and you know to be able to have that time, it's also really hard for the family to to yeah. watch their loved one and yeah. So what, what's your advice to the the loved ones and, and the caretakers of how to best get mm-hmm. through that time?
2: Yeah, well, and this has been the theme of this entire talk from its intro is it really takes a team, doesn't it? It takes community and people who to walk alongside us um, to give us grace and space without a house. Um, I find that, Aaron more in dementia, situations where people live you know three years like my mother three years in hospice care Um, it's exhausting Um, that is not typical I don't know if this is comforting or not but I'll I think it's important to be honest it's not typical in cancer diagnoses Um, cancer prognosis tends to be more predictable and also more rapid when the end comes. So there isn't usually this protracted time of suffering and vigil as there is in neurologic conditions and heart failure, but mostly neurologic conditions. That Those are some of the toughest to um, go the distance with and you need support. Absolutely. Um, okay, so our next question
0: is or, or I guess a thought is um so when you have palliative care, knowing when you should go into hospice is, mm-hmm. is a little bit easier, right? Because oh, yeah. there's yeah. Yeah. There's a team that's okay. There's there's a team and, that and
2: also not quite so cold water wash type of abrupt. <laughs> because it, to the degree people wish to know and want information, we're going to share information and we're going to talk about what's happening if they want to know so that they can make decisions and direct their care. And I, I you know, am so impressed with the oncologists that I work with because they get it too to say, look, what we're, we're really trying to promote your quality of life. And your well-being and your symptom management, and giving you further disease-directed treatment, is actually going to make that worse. Mm-hmm. So it's time to think about—they often call it best supportive care, which is hospice. Is let's bring in a team of professionals that, when things—if um, things should change—you've got this response team that can come and help you. The difference between traditional home health; those nurses come and go. And if something happens after hours or Saturday, go the ED, right? Well, the ED is a nightmare and oftentimes isn't going to help us with what's going on. Hospice is a form of home care in our country. And when something happens, they come to us <laughs> and they troubleshoot and then they talk to our doctors and they get meds out there and equipment out there to help support us so we don't have to go to the emergency department. So that's the other piece is how utilizing that support so that we can do better and the stress of the illness is less on us as well as on our family.
0: So can you talk more, um, somebody asked about um, sympathetic symptoms. Can you talk more about
2: what that is and, and what that looks like? Yeah so sympathetic symptoms i'll use my own experience of that you know my brother had a whipple and um, a protracted recovery and i was his primary caregiver though he was married my sister-in-law is just not comfortable with that and he was with my husband and me and i lost 14 pounds and i had belly pain and you know all these things i'm a physician i know what's going on but you know this is my brother and it, it is, we sometimes actually acquire the symptomatology of those we love. We, it just starts to be a combined. And part of it is I'm an empath. I pick up on what people are feeling and I feel it too. It's the way I'm wired. And so recognizing that and doing things to nurture and sustain myself during the time that I was his active caregiver was critically important going to see my doctor, explaining to them reluctantly that I was having these symptoms, having tests done to reassure, you know, it, it, we don't want to just pretend it's not there. We want to pay attention to it because caregiver stress is significant. And I, that's why, you know, these guidelines are so important um, and making changes to support the caregiver. Being a caregiver is one of the most uh, challenging roles, no matter how much we love it, because it, it the amount of stress and vigilance that we then activate, and that what it does to us physiologically is very, very real. Absolutely. Yeah. Does
0: Kellogg Cancer Center have a palliative program?
2: They do. Um, the program that I helped start at Evanston exists and persists and is shepherded by some wonderful people i don't know if their model is the same as ours i get the impression it's not because at northwestern we see patients alongside or in tandem with oncology um oftentimes are in the room so the person doesn't have to have multiple visits um, we really integrate and create team i'm not sure that model is the same at north shore um I know it's frequent across the country because that's what we consider the best practice model is that full integration, and we hope to reproduce that in neurology in heart failure in in pulmonary you know be there with those specialists to help them in the care of their patients
0: so you had said earlier if you've seen one hospice program, you've seen one hospice program does the same um is the, is the same true for palliative care i mean is it is. <laughs> Yeah.
2: So, yeah, I, I think, you know, we certainly, even without, within our health system, we have palliative care expressed in different ways. Like some in the, in, in some of our um, geographic areas for Northwestern, palliative care is still growing and they don't have the full medical component or specialty level. They're doing mostly advanced care planning. They're not doing robust symptom management. In some, it is it like the apprehension of the the very intelligent wife it is just kind of this hospice pre-hospice i've seen that and it makes me very angry because that's not what it's intended to be it's not just a way to identify and get people on board so to speak so they'll go into hospice it's really a robust model And yet it still carries that name. So I think it's important to be discerning to ask, do they have board certified palliative care specialists? Who's on their team? You know, what is their on call? Do they see me in the hospital? Do they see me in the clinic? Do they see me at home? Those types of questions to be an informed consumer, maybe have the daughter-in-law be the one (laughs) who asks those questions can be really, really important um, and advocate for us. How about let's talk Medicare coverage? Um, is it
0: is is there a difference between Medicare versus Medicare Advantage when it comes to yeah. palliative care? <laughs>
2: yeah. Well, as it comes to palliative care, that's a really good question, and it depends. Um, I, you know, here I am on a recording, but I'm not a big, I thought it was going to be a fan of Medicare Advantage. I'm not a fan of Medicare Advantage. Uh, We call it Medicare disadvantage because basically these companies have really limited, you know, when I listen to all these ads and what they say they cover, but then they say to the patient that, after they already had the care. Oh, we don't cover that. That's out of network, this, that, and the other. You end up with more expenses in Medicare Advantage than you do in traditional Medicare because all these prior authorizations. And the only people who are making, who are getting what they from that program are the CEOs right now. It's a mess. So cert- Medicare Advantage programs is managed care and they, if indeed they have palliative care services, it will depend. And like, for example, United Healthcare in certain areas of our country has an amazing palliative care home service. And we have—I have a cat on my lap, and you have a cat <laughs> walking on they, you, Erin. They, they, um, they are part of the, it, the
0: healing process. So
2: right? again, it. Oh, I know. I've got a purring cat sitting on my lap. It's really cute. It 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 comes down to this. Is why we want to plan. Right. We want to start asking questions and maybe the person asking the questions is not the person receiving the care because they've got their checklist in their notebook and they're getting this information. So when things are happening, we know who to call. We know who to access. And having that set up beforehand is so much better than waiting for the crisis to occur and then trying to find it. So that's why plan, plan, plan hope for the best, plan for the rest, is so critical. Yeah, absolutely. Um,
0: What about the supplies that are needed during hospice, home hospice? Um, Mm. Is is
2: everything covered? Pretty much everything is covered. And some programs interpret that differently. So again, asking questions. But uh, certainly the durable medical equipment, is delivered to the home. And if you don't like the bed, you can ask for another one. Wheelchairs, oxygen, um, things like that. Different supplies for personal care are um, <laughs> are provided. I think we had like three years worth of uh, adult briefs. Um just <laughs> applied from my mom. It was like, oh my gosh, this truck of, of, of adult briefs. Okay, where are we gonna put those things? Um, but very, very helpful not to have to scramble to find things like that. And And sometimes it's surprising what they don't provide. It's like, wait, you're not covering this medication? Well, they're not allowed by law to cover every single medication you're taking. So if the medication is not part of the reason you're in hospice, so for example, you're on Synthroid, but you have pancreas cancer well they're not going to pay for your synthroid because it has nothing to do with your pancreas cancer. They'll pay for everything related to the cancer and it's you know treatment and symptoms, but they won't cover the hypertensive drugs unless they are directly related to the terminal diagnosis. Oh insurance companies I know <laughs> I know it's so messy and you know and, and not knowing which what Covers what and this, that, and the other, and not having the energy to even look at it, right? right. And that's I mean, where that's I'm, I'm so grateful there. for the the social workers and my my um, nurse coordinator because, gosh, they just go to town for people and figure stuff out because sometimes it's just absolutely overwhelming.
0: Well, thank goodness for for you and and folks like you because um, it's it's so important. Which leads me into yeah. my next piece here before we get to our last question. um, It's a little props for you. Um, Somebody said, just FYI, for me at Northwestern Kellogg, my palliative treatment was your model in tandem with treatment. Um, They said, thank you for your part in spearheading that. It's part of why I'm still here along with Cancer Wellness Center.
2: So Mm -hmm. kudos. kudos to you. Thanks for that Um,
0: affirmation. Yay. (laughs) So my, my last question is what are three key takeaways that you want our viewers to leave with today? Mm
2: -hmm. So I think one of the most important things, which I say to every patient is you write your own story. You know, when you, if you go on the internet or if you ask somebody, how much time do I have? They don't know. They don't know because you weren't part of the studies that looked at that. Those were population studies of mixed group of people you weren't in that study so you're going to write your own story and knowing that and also that people around you need to be very much leaning in to support your story and it has to be about what you value so that's where the key takeaway is knowing that reassurance and creating the team which includes rolf cancer wellness, as well as your medical team and getting them to communicate is so, so important. The other piece is early (laughs) establishing the champion and making sure they even go with you to some of your appointments. It shouldn't be just you by yourself. You should have someone else there who's listening to the conversations. And when decisions come up, engage with your loving committee um, to help you as you navigate these tough decisions. So you feel the support and they also feel that they know what's going on. I think that's most important. And then writing these things down um, and doing doing it early enough so that um, it's there when you need it uh, and looking at it every once in a while to make sure it's up to date. So write your own story, create the team to support you And make sure you document some of these things so we don't run into trouble or barriers for you receiving the care that you value and that you know is right for you and your family.
0: Love that. I I, I love that. We could sit here and talk for Mm -hmm. for hours, I'm sure. I know that we have gone over our time, so I appreciate um, you staying with us and, and answering all of these questions. Um, this has been recorded and is going to live on um, our uh, website and, and um, our YouTube channel. So, for yeah, folks who are too. for folks who are um, asking questions while watching this on the replay, they could write "replay" in the comments and ask questions, and, and we'll make sure that we get those to you um, today. You know, as as soon as those come in. Um, but I, I really want to thank you not only for sharing what you did today, but what you do in your day to day and what you've done this whole time. I mean, it's clear that you've made such an impact within this this world um, and within this mm. guidelines of care. Um, and and it's really important. And and speaking from experience of seeing people go through this, um, you know, it's it is something that um, is is so meaningful. So yeah. I want to thank you um, very much. for My joy. I
2: mean it. it it's yeah, What a privilege. Uh, It's just amazing to me that I've gotten to do this work. Thank you. And thank you to Mm -hmm. Sabina and Cancer Wellness Mm -hmm. Center for partnering
0: with us and for everybody who joined us today and and leaning in with these meaningful questions. Again, if you are catching this on the replay, you could go ahead and write replay in the comments and we'll make sure that we get those questions to Dr. Martha um, as as soon as we can. I'd like to close this afternoon by sharing something um, from an event that Rolf had last week you know we heard from lots of families that Ralph Foundation was there when they needed it most and and how they're still there with them today and it made me realize that what makes the Ralph team and this community so special it's it's the connections and support from institutions like Northwestern and and Cancer Wellness Center it's our staff and supporters our patients and their families that make our community truly one of a kind and you know it's the collective determination and our fight and and the gut wrenching vulnerability, and willingness of simply showing up for those who need us. And I'm so proud to be part of this community and, and appreciate you, Dr. Dr. Martha, and everybody who's here with us today. We, we greatly appreciate that. So on behalf of Rolf Pancreatic Cancer Foundation and Cancer Wellness Center, we deeply thank you for your support and send love and light to you as we head into this holiday season and the new year. Thanks so much. Until next time, stay healthy and take good care. Bye-bye.